You, you never want to find yourself in a position where you have like a monolithic idea of like what's going on or kind of like one position that you that you kind of believe you're taking or, or kind of depicting because people aren't like that people's identities aren't like that hello and welcome to another episode of love and citizenship i really appreciate you tuning in to listen to another episode and i really hope that you've enjoyed what you've listened to so far So I'm pretty excited about today's episode because it happens to feature one of the most creative humans I know, the wonderful, the incredible James Ireland. They're a playwright based out of London and Dublin, and their creativity is contagious. That's just it, in the sense that they perhaps embody that creative lifestyle better than anybody that I've ever personally met. And they've inspired me regularly to pursue my own creative ventures. So I owe a lot of this to James in a big, big way. And I'm so excited about today's episode because when I sat down to make the project plan for this podcast, they were one of the first people that I had in mind because the way with which they talk about their creative process, their their art, their writing, there is such love in it that it was a no-brainer. I knew I wanted to have James on the podcast and I'm so glad that they decided to come on board because I'm so proud of how this episode has turned out. And I could be here talking about this episode for days on end and I never capture enough. But we we go through the origin story, if you will, the introduction into James's, you know, journey into that of a playwright, into theatre, how they found that as a medium, also their creative motivations, the kind of things that they're drawn to. But this conversation is a lot more than that. There's conversation about responsibility especially when it comes to representing marginalized communities within the theater or the play writing circles that James, you know, actively finds themselves in. But there's a wealth of conversation in this. It gets pretty nerdy at pretty points, but I'm I'm also excited to share this with you because it really captures that the love that James has for the creativity. And I'm just going to shut up and let the episode do its talking. If you like what you've heard so far, if you've liked the episode so far, there's a couple more down the line, but we would really appreciate the support. We're so new. Word of mouth is the budget that we have when it comes to promotion. So if you could leave us a review, if you could share it amongst your networks, any and all help would be super helpful. So thank you again. And without any further wait, the wonderful, the incredible, the most creative human I know, James. Ireland. Cheers, dude. Thank you for having me. I'm James. I'm a I'm a playwright and theatre maker, sort of based between London and Dublin, I suppose. And yeah, I, d- I don't know what else to say. I write plays. I make plays. I try and tell capitalism to fuck off. And <laughs> I mean, don't we all? Or at least, don't we hope we all? That's that's the point. <laughs> what are What are you reading at the moment? I know it's something I almost hinted at, but what tell tell us what you're reading at the moment. Nice little conversation starter. Well, as as you'll know, as a writer yourself, there are. I think my my immediate pile on my on my desk is uh, this is five books tall, so that's not too bad. The very top of the pile is oh, is a brilliant one. Our, our good friend Robin sent this to me. This is your inner fish, and I wish it was a self help book. It sounds like a self help book. It does. But, uh, <laughs> it's actually sort of evolution, paleontology, anatomy. 
Okay. And it's full of these hilarious quotations. Like, oh man, he's talking about like, so, so this guy, he's, you know, he's, he's a paleontologist and he's interested in like the, the moment when fish crawled onto land you know we all, we've all seen the memes of like the uh the tiktalic kind of like crawling out onto the beach and like a bunch of humans like giving it the middle finger like 350 million years ago some fish crawled out of the water and now i have to go to work we all we, we've all yeah. seen those neil shubin you know he's <laughs> one of the big guys for that but his book is like the opening line of it is like i first saw one of our inner fish on a snowy July afternoon. What does that mean? And I get it because he's talking about the fossil, but like he's also talking about like that beautiful way of seeing something that exists in the present that you're walking through Mm -hmm. and getting that like double vision of seeing like what it looked like in the past, how it relates to the past, where it's flying towards in the future. And I love shit like that. I absolutely love just messing about with time like that. It's, it's stunning. So uh, yeah, Neil, Neil Shubin, fish, what a guy. For as long as I've known you, you've, you've, you've created. And that sounds so like, of course, everybody creates, but not, not in the way James does. You've inspired me. You've, you've, you've inspired me to create. I mean, at different times in our lives, I think we've both had conversations about writing and the many ideas that kind of go through our heads and between those conversations obviously we sit down and break out into songs which is great but what i'm trying to get at is you you really really inspired me and the creative in me and maybe i want to focus the question more towards you in the way that what what inspires you and what inspires you to create that's a great question and yeah, it will have a, a pretty long answer. That's fine. Um, <laughs> it's a loaded question as well, let's be honest. No, I, I know it's, I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll talk all day about what inspires me to create because there are, there are so many things and there are so many things I'm interested in. And, and I'll talk for, for this whole podcast about, about one section of that and I'll, and I'll completely forget to mention like, like hundreds of other sort of areas. But I guess having having sort of uh, having sort of referenced uh, little old Neil and his inner fish a few moments ago, well, one of the things that I, that I am sort of sort of really I don't know, as as a child, like spent my life in like the Natural History Museum in London, like look at, looking at the dinosaurs. Like, hey, w- wouldn't we all have done that if we, if we had the opportunity? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and like just that magic of, of like animals and nature and like spooky little creatures like hanging out under the water or in the dark or in the sky, you know. And and I used to like watch these like like as as a teenager, well as as like an adult, watch watch you know documentaries like River Monsters with Jeremy Wade, looking at these like incredibly cool like incredibly cool organisms, giant fish that live in like freshwater rivers. And there's like, man, there's like such a magic in like that. And then you like look out of your own window and you look at like. I don't know, like a, like a heron flying past. There are loads of herons in Dublin, right? There are loads of herons in, in Isleworth, my mum's flat. And you look at it and you're like, shit, like, okay, we all know it's a dinosaur. But like, fuck, that thing is huge. Like, like its wingspan is gigantic. Why do we not think that is like as mega fucking cool as like dinosaurs and shit were? And then you're just kind of looking at that and you're like, oh, Christ, like, fuck, how do I phrase this? Like, um, 
you know when you like when you're like walking down like alongside a river or something and you see all these little like birdos acting like dinosaurs like knocking about in the trees yeah and then you're like and then there's like some herd of cows off by the way and you're like shit it's a herd of iguanodon like there's absolutely no difference and you just have this moment where you're living in like two different time zones mm-hmm. i love that shit i love like man like when i started doing when i started writing let's let's rewind fuck it man let's rewind <laughs> when, when i started writing plays and when i started writing theater i was really into making puppets like puppets for like animals this started in secondary school when my drama teacher was like, hey, we're doing Richard III, we need someone to like, we need someone to make your man's head that gets chopped off. Myself and my brother were, you know, we, we were doing the drama A-level at the time and our A-level. So she was like, listen, like, can you, can you make the head? And, you know, it turned out great. We, we, we cast Chris Bourne's face, mm-hmm. put a wig on it, stuck it in a box and covered it in blood. And it was stunning. Like, <laughs> and he, he looked, he looked beautiful, you know, and, and, and he looked dead. And then, and then the next production was, <laughs> was the Lord of the Flies. So, so you need this kind of huge, giant wild boar's head mm-hmm. for that. And then, and then one of the guys, Nick, who kind of was working in the drama department, he, he was taking a show up to the, to the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, Stacy by Jack Thorne, which needs a, a kind of a dead dog, basically. And he was like, hey, James, like, can you make us a dead dog? No problem, I said. And I made him a, a dead dog. And, and you make it like you make the skeleton out of all these tiny little like sections of rope. And then you cover it in the fur and, and, it, and it can move. It can articulate like a, like a, normal, like a normal creature. So eventually, when I when I kind of when I when I came to Trinity, um, Trinity Dublin, and started doing like the the theatre course, all of my all of my writing that I had been using, writing songs, writing short stories, writing poetry, um, and writing a bit of theatre, I kind of turned a lot of it towards the theatre. And I thought, like, cool, like some of these moments of of magic, some of these moments of like just animals being really fucking cool and like way more wholesome than like any of these anthropocentric universes that people chat about where like where like humans are like the center of the universe like humans love love all the people where they think about themselves and, and like this one species and they and they just don't give a shit about the fact that there are like all these other creatures out there with like real life consciousnesses and i thought like man you know like let's let's build let's build like a like a giant space whale let's build a uh, a dinosaur like a sauropod and just stick them in the theatre, and that was so. We so we put all of those in in a play called called Mercury, which was in the new theatre in 2016, directed by Sophie Cairns, and that was mega fun. So so we had this play where we uh, where we just you know stuck like like space whales like flying through the sky and like giant sauropods and like oh man like the most beautiful AV design by Jen Oust and. And that, you know, and that existed. That play existed. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> Something about like time and, and, <laughs> and dinosaurs and parallel universes and turning back time and, and space travel. And it all kind of came together in one lump. And, and, you know, and that was, and that was one world that I made for, for one play. And it was like, okay, tick, carried on. What, where, where's the next world going to come from? Where's the next play going to come from? Where's like... I start getting so interested in like nat- natural history, landscape history. And that's kind of, that's one of the foundations. That's one of the foundations of my practice. It's so, so interesting to hear you talk about 
just, I'm sorry, I got lost there. Like I started imagining all these different parallel dimensions with flying whales and like to be able to recreate that on stage. I almost curse myself for not being able to see that, but also just like, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible that you, you played a part actively in helping somebody realize that vision. And then not just that, but people got to see that vision. That's, that's fucking incredible. It's, 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 it's beautiful. And I know you're drawn by natural history and I, I will revisit it, but like my mind's naturally going to the more political leanings of your work and mm. the more recent one that I can look at because I was there in the room and it stayed with me. It stayed with me so incredibly that it, 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 it's there. Like I remember it clear as day, especially the ending and I won't spoil in case anybody else wants to revisit this or read it or it's put up somewhere again and they, they have the opportunity to see it, then please do because the experience of sitting down and being part of the play, because there have been attempts at audience interaction, but it was done so beautifully, like you were part of the play. You had to be like the audience, no matter what that audience was, was part of the play. And that ending, that there's, it's meditation, but also there's an intense sense of grief for the planet. But then there's also hope. There's all these emotions that you as the audience are feeling. It's incredible. I, I, I can go on and on about this. So Take, take it away, James. Tell us about what inspires you to do pieces like that. I don't strictly want to limit you to show me your wallet, but what draws you to, and I suppose, how have you found taking these political ideas and the system that's there and critiquing it in a play that is... Yeah, no, th- thanks for, for bringing that up. It's always a privilege hearing you kind of reflecting on how that kind of, yeah, how, how, that, how that affected you as an audience member. Yeah, show me your wallets. Well, that that's uh that was a short play in in Smock Alley, and I think uh, I recently completed the kind of full length draft of that, which I think at the moment I'm calling, "What if we held a séance in a theatre at the end of the world?" And and anyone listening, you might think that what Pran is describing with the kind of meditation is is this séance in a theatre at the end of the world. That's not true. The séance happens earlier. What what Pran is describing is the the fallout from this seance which goes horribly wrong (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah you're 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 kind of you're kind of you're touching upon something here of of what what is the transition from 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 kind of writing about or being fascinated with natural history what's the transition from that to kind of the more political writing that, that i'm kind of doing now and i suppose like you know the at the core of it is really the I was approaching that natural history stuff standpoint from kind of, you know, arguing against an anthropocentric universe, plus a fair bit of like, just trying to rediscover that childhood magic um, (laughs) and share it with people. I say childhood, I I sit there in front of river monsters as a, as a, as a current 26 year old and absolutely love it. But, but I think it's a natural progression, isn't it? From, from critiquing like, humanity as a whole to to realizing as you kind of you know do a bit more research that that it's not humanity as a whole that's fucking up the world it's like some people in the system of you know late capitalism but also before that in in systems like imperialism and i think you know you you look at examples like like indigenous populations in like the amazon for example these are people who have absolutely managed not to fuck up their environments for thousands of years so that kind of uh that kind of begs the question or 
yeah, it, it basically you kind of end up with the counterpoint to that is like, well, if I'm spending a lot of energy like writing plays, focusing on on stuff that like because of my biases might effectively be like the dominant culture. And you kind of realize that actually like there, there are people, there are people in the world, there are communities, there are like intersections of identities or the rest that are being like fucked over by everybody else. And that's kind of like the way. Now that, that's not a groundbreaking point. I don't want to spend a lot of time like dwelling on my realization that the world is fucked up because like a lot of people have put this work in. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was a Google search away for me. And, you know, maybe I should have got to it sooner. But no worries. I'm here now. What were we talking about again? We're talking about the the transition from natural history and your attraction to it to more like political leanings, but it makes sense because you've you've had that foundation of understanding that there's more to this planet and it's naive to think that it centers around us to then get to a place of like okay, how do we take that focus away from the self-imposed importance that man has come to associate with him? And I want to wind the clock back because I think I've really built it up there. And I think it'll be interesting to visit that through the lens of your journey with creativity. When was the first time you started flexing your creativity? Or is that just something you've always lived as? Or like, has it, is a creative's life been something that's been so part of you that you can't even go back and be like, I don't know? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll answer that in a second. And you might need to remind me to, I might forget. Okay. But I think you made a really good point there when you said like, this is not humanity's world. But what I want to bring to that really, or, or what I've kind of realized now, and what I'm bringing to my kind of my more recent work is that yes, this is not humanity's world. But also at one point, we were all animals too. And that wasn't, you know, where where do you, where do you draw the line and say this world we we arose in, as a natural part of it and then suddenly we are not a natural part of it that that doesn't make sense as a distinction we actually always are part of the natural world so there was a world that that didn't exist under imminent current climate catastrophe but now we are in that world and now there is no escaping it and now unless we're fighting against it we are complicit Inaction is complicity, right? You're, you're part of the problem. So a lot of the mechanisms of that play, you talk about like audience interaction. So I think of audience interaction in that play in terms of like throwing anything that we can at an audience member to help them realize that they're complicit. And if you can take that by framing, by structuring a piece of art to say like, oh my God, you're, you're cheering to make this guy like carry on well in this play you're you're obviously complicit in what he's doing maybe if you take a step back you'll realize you know that applies to wider society as well no no that's like not the most nuanced point in the world <laughs> and and the trick is all in the nuance isn't it the trick is in like being able to craft a piece of theater that makes the audience laugh along just enough that like they don't realize what they're cheering for um, <laughs> you know they don't realize what they're laughing at that's also kind of one of the key points. And, you know, similar mechanisms I, I use in, in the kind of current draft of fuck genocide, fuck Oliver Cromwell. What a title. <laughs> yeah, I fucking hope so. You know, <laughs> I want to see that like plastered across like fucking double <laughs> that classes in, in London. I want to see that like 
there, there was a kind of you know famous iconic moment in in like the late 90s when when Mark Ravenhill had a play called Shopping and Fucking that like premiered in in the royal court and you know back back in like 1998 everyone was like a swear word on a theater banner you know and they and they lost their shits and and that thing like sold out immediately because of the controversy which like i don't know like that that's not necessarily something i care about but like i don't know in some ways it, it fucked over the project because like people like weren't going to see like the theater that was marketed truly is what it was they were going to they you know everyone just kind of bought a ticket because they were like jesus like that's some controversy i want to hop in to see what's going on i don't give a shit i think those words are like powerful i want to see like a yeah i want to see a banner i want to see a banner that says Fuck like Cromwell made genocide and he <laughs> should fuck right off <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then after that you got to go after winston churchill you know, oh, I because... would so be on board with that. Oh my god! <laughs> right, and yet somehow England is completely tone deaf to any understanding of how completely fucked up he is. And then after that, you know, you maybe you go after like the, the monarchy because they're also. I would also be on board with that. <laughs> so on board. <laughs> this all of this sounds great. <laughs> these aren't new points to Irish and Indian listeners, right? But, but they are new points to English listeners, which, which is why you've got to think a little bit about like where your target audience is and, and why a play like this Cromwell one I'm describing gets written differently if you think of it being produced in England versus if you think of it being produced in Ireland. And, you know, there, there are other points to, to really consider with, with that play as well, which, which are that like you, you don't want to end up like focusing all on the British, because even if you are like telling like you're sorry the english even if you are like telling like british people that like the english are fucked up if you spend all your energy and all your narrative on there really you're just confirming the same kind of like position of power that like all the attention and resources go, go to england you want to make sure that in a play like that more time is actually spent on you know victims slash survivors of, of those events so i hope I've, I've written a play with that kind of balance as well absolutely mate and i think there is a very interesting perspective that you come from. And of course, as somebody who, you know, sat through one of your more recent plays, it stays. It, it's, it's a perspective that sits with you. And I suppose this is a good segue into, you've, you've taken us through these journeys, through these worlds, whether that's telling Cromwell to fuck off or critiquing capitalism or space whales. What was the starting point? And at what point did you settle down on or think about maybe using creativity, theatre, as your means of activism? You're, you're never going to get away with any of your segues, are you? <laughs> um, I, no, I, I've got, I'm, I'm happy to respond to kind of what, what, you've, what you've laid down there. I think, I mean, it's, it's worth a lot hearing your, again, hearing your kind of reflections as you left that play and, and hearing that it's having some effect. I suppose, you know, there's a, there's a wide debate here, really, of like, if we, if we think about the urgency of you know climate crisis okay but also the urgency of like many 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 people being fucked over right now by like systems of power it's kind of like well you know what what's the deal here like why like how many different what can you do how many ways or attempts to like affect that can you create as you know, as somebody like currently on the dole, living in a corner of my mom's flat, like still suffering from long COVID with no hands, like what, <laughs> what can I be expected to do? 
And, you know, there's a question here of like, well, you know, at some point I've got to ask myself, why, why am I spending my time and my energy writing plays? Would that be better spent in direct action? Would that be better spent, you know, you know, you know, then, then it's like, if, if you're in direct action, are you spending more time and more energy, you know, contributing to organizing? Are you spending less energy, um, you know, but showing up to a lot of, you know, actions, for example, marches, protests. And, and one of the things that I kind of, that, that I kind of stumbled across in the course of this thinking was like, well, you know, how, how are there different ways of, of doing or performing activism as part of a primary practice? in theatre or the arts, you know. Now, like, <laughs> that might just be like a really, like, shitty way of saying, oh my God, create political work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, but I do think that there's like, I, I think there's a lot of worth in the idea of like, where does that confluence lie? Or where does the most efficient confluence between like activism and, and art lie? Because if you can basically like, trick people who who do theater or make art and say well look like these are all like struggling on minimum wage jobs at the same time as trying to then spend what little savings you have from these minimum wage jobs you're having to spend those savings investing in your own craft paying to put on your own shows and like, you know, maybe getting nowhere. That's a lot of time and a lot of energy. And I do not blame anyone for having no time and no energy at the end of that to spend in activism or making direct action or, you know, re reading something by Extinction Rebellion and saying, I agree, but what will I do about it? I don't know. I'll decide tomorrow. Right. We can all relate to that. So I think there's I don't know, I think there's a lot of value in, in working out answers, possible answers to that question of like how, how best to gel together someone's primary art practice with activism, because then you can do both, right? <laughs> you can do both at the same time. And you don't have to give up your primary practice. You don't have to give up like the thing that you want to do, which is your right and your choice. To some degree, we all also have responsibilities, but you don't have to give it up. You can do both. When, when I say write about my experiences, they're, they're my own. And since I'm only writing about myself, I can take responsibility for those actions. And I'm being as honest because it's one person's opinion. But say the short that I'm working on at the moment, I've had to send it on to 
women in my life that I know will be honest with me when they read my writing because I don't know what it's like to live, date and love as a woman. And here I have created this character. So that is me taking charge and making sure that I'm making as well-informed a character and as well-informed a decision for those characters as I can. Because when you create, there's a responsibility on you to represent as honestly as you can. And what I find interesting is you've you've done that so incredibly well when it comes to Rajesh and Rish. And for anybody that's curious about what this play or this work of art that I'm talking about is, James, you do more justice talking about the play. So would you maybe like to give us give us an introduction to what this is, what the, the play is about, and kind of we'll take it from there. Yeah, this is a this is a, a project that was started off by Arjun Singh in London in, in 2019. Basically a, a, a queer British Asian Indian rom-com. And it's a it's a theatre play. And uh he kind of he kind of wrote a, a sort of short kind of I don't know, 10, 10 minutes sort of script draft, which was devised by the director, Sophie Kenz, and then the two actors, um, Brandeir Ramana and Madhav Dasantha. And they kind of devised a sort of 15 minute kind of version around Arjun's original script, which was performed just in a, in a, as a short play. And then the guys kind of they thought it had potential, right? And, and Arjun, as, as a sort of creative producer behind the project, saw a lot of potential in it. And, you know, he, he believes a lot in it attempting to accelerate um, participation or diverse participation in the arts as a British Asian man himself who he works in advertising and which is brilliant brilliant work um, but but you know he's he's kind of shocked stunned disgusted I don't know maybe you wouldn't put it so forcefully but just at the you know at the daft of participation from really any anyone of color particularly from his kind of point of view so he wanted to take it further at, at which point they had, uh, yeah, this unfunded project with quite a tight timeline. They wanted to kind of attempt to turn it round on and then found themselves needing, needing a writer to basically help them, you know, them in the devising room. But how do you turn that into like a full finished, polished 60 minute script? So I, I don't think they had any queer British Asian writers in their networks. I certainly didn't in mine at the time. So ultimately, I was I was pitched project, and I guess that comes with its own questions of of like, well, as I say, like, are, are you taking away a writing role or a potential like role from from somebody else? Ultimately, because it was like an, an unwaged project and a very tight like two and a half month turnaround, I made a decision that I thought it was probably okay for me to get involved as long as I trusted myself to be able to trust my, my research and trust ourselves and our process to then, you know, obviously bring in queer British Asian people and queer Indian people um, for as much of the kind of research phase interviews, like first draft scripts, all the rest as possible. But nevertheless, we arrive at, we arrive at, we arrive at this play, um, which is uh, two guys, Rajesh and Naresh, um, one British Asian banker and one Indian Rajasthani cricket bat maker, Podshape. And they are... Uh, well, Rajesh, having a terrible time in his in his finance world, um, takes a little trip to India to Mumbai, meets Naresh, falls in love, and you get this uh, stunning romantic comedy that's then sort of shot through with with all the kind of like internalized homophobia, internalized racism that these two characters are experiencing in their own separate worlds and separate cultures set against also the backdrop of kind of India's like 2018 decriminalization of homosexuality. 
how did you approach the, I suppose, creation of the story, making sure that obviously research is a part of it and I maybe want to dig deeper into what the research involved and how you went about it, but also your own thoughts during that process of like doing justice to the story and these characters and the people that the story is about, because there's a lot going on there. And I mean, bit of a spoiler, but like, it's an incredible play. And I'm going to leave it as open-ended because there's so many ways we can go into it. You've come onto the project. You've a glimpse, a 15-minute idea of what the story is, but you have the responsibility of turning it into a full 60-minute production. Where do you start? What's, what's going on in your head? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And of course, like huge, huge responsibilities there because it's not my story to tell. And it's also, you know, the, the ensemble mostly heterosexual as well so to another degree as well it's also not their story to tell either you know people talk about representation in the arts but but i think you know really what we want to aim for is participation right which which then puts like in some ways like this in like a kind of strange strange position so let's rewind when we were doing this project or 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 during this project, I was thinking a lot about actionable allyship. And this was research I was doing for my MA in writing at the Royal College of Arts. I was thinking about like, yeah, actionable allyship in in sort of theatre and like new writing specifically. That's one of the areas I'm I'm more interested in, in sort of producing extant works. And yeah, just trying to to figure out like, well, like from a position of privilege, we're working under that same paradigm that like within the UK theatre scene, there's a lot of systemic discrimination. So as someone with like an identity that gives me like, I'm white, I most of the time can pass as male pretty easily, which isn't necessarily fun for me, but you know, gives me, gives me a card, doesn't it? So what, what can I do with, with those kind of like privileges? What, what actions can I make that you know, are actually actions of allyship rather than, you know, sort of shitty patronizing, like, come on board and I'll help out sort of, sort of shitty ways. How, how can I, how can I use my privilege to kind of work towards participation or, you know, cultivating participation in a theater scene that is an absolute mess of systemic discrimination. And, and of course, as part of my MA, I, I did, you know, my, my thesis, I did a lot of analysis on what those barriers are, like what, what the problems are that lower down in the chain that create the problems higher up in the chain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We know how that kind of goes. So I did a lot of thinking about what ways someone can use their privilege to further participation without taking away without taking up space in theory some of the things that can be done and there's a lot more detail here about the ways that you approach it but but some of the things that could be done i guess would be like devising and theater making as systems of like creating new work are are ones that are like quite democratic and and you can go into a space with people who are not playwrights and come out of it with a crafted play if you're working in terms of like devising and theater making a crafted play that they have control and input over rather than say writing a play in your own room going and trying to cast actors 
And in theory, working in that way doesn't take away, although what you'd ideally do is, is find you know, playwrights within that community who can do the writing in that rehearsal room as well. I suppose if you do have playwrights, you know, or, or access to playwrights, which also comes with burdens such as like, do you have funding? Are you able to pay people for their time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? What are the resources being spent on this? But, but then, of course, you know, what you're really meant to be doing is or what you really should be doing is, is producing those playwrights um, rather than kind of like stepping in. Right. And, and then after that, you just kind of step back and, and let people work themselves. I think I think it's important what what you said there. My God, it sounds beautiful because sometimes there is an urgency, not urgency, but it's about time that certain stories were told. And when we tell stories like that, stories that are done in the process that you're describing, a very democratic process where like the writer may not be brown, but they have done this wealth of research and they've involved people who identify with those groups and with the different characters in the story you end up telling stories that are very real because they're not taken out of your head as James or my head as Pran, but they're inspired by these very real conversations that you and I may have had as writers with the very people that we're hoping to tell these stories for. And I love it. It is incredibly powerful. As I'm talking about it, I'm thinking about a kid yet to be born who years down the line in, in their journey of figuring out who they are as a person, end up coming across stories such as Rajesh and Narration. Maybe, maybe for that brown kid, it brings them closer to this idea of who they are. And I think that's why it's so important. Of course, it would be incredible if a queer brown person got to write that story. But I think it's a story that needed to be told. It needs to be told. There's so many more stories like that. And I think the process that you went down on, which is why, like, I have such admiration for that story and for the way you went about it because it would have been horrible had this just been a story by a white person. It's just like there's there's a deafness there that you can't get past, whereas that that's not your process, and I love it. The hope is always to further facilitate and cultivate participation, which you were kind of touching on there. I suppose in terms of specifically Rajesh and Naresh, then, um, what, what we find ourselves in is a, is a position where, where we have this play or this genesis of a play. We want to put it on, but we, but we don't have access to a writer from within that community with our current level of resources. So, yeah, research is everything. Even then, having done that research, having done kind of research into like primary and secondary sources, a lot of kind of like critical reading around like, you know, well, post-colonialism, queer theory, critical race theory, that's all kind of expected. You need to do that stuff. But, but then really, like, none of that gets you anywhere if you don't have people in the room. And the, the kind of the biggest key part of the process of creating the play was that it was a devising process, that we had a creative ensemble of people who were living parts of these identities so we, we did like interviews with like a queer woman from India that was kind of like, for example, one of our participants. OK, she has different perspectives to like one of our other interviewees who say was like a, a gender nonconforming British South Asian person, also queer, has a different kind of perspective to like, say, someone else we had in who was like a gay British South Asian man. Um, all of all of these kind of identities and people that were kind of contributing to the to the process, like 
starting off with interviews, big, in-depth, detailed interviews, but also bringing them back into the room at moments like presenting drafts of the script, bringing people in to have conversations together. Because if you don't understand, like, you, you never want to find yourself in a position where you have like a monolithic idea of like what's going on or kind of like one position that you that you kind of believe you're taking or, or kind of depicting like because people aren't like that people's identities aren't like that and if you have if you have like one sole version of events that you're kind of getting like really you need to kind of ask yourself like who who am I leaving out what's what's being missed out and then of course like the, the flip side of that is is if you if you get this kind of polyphony of voices which contradict and have different ideas and different takes and different versions of what they want to be in the play, different ideas of what tone they want the play to strike. It's also not your responsibility from outside that community. It's, it's not, it cannot be your voice that sifts through those and decides which parts to pick out. You've got to put those people in a room together and let them talk, right, as, as, as far as is possible and see what comes out of those discussions and, and listen to like that and let that direct and inform the rest of your process. I think what it really gets down to is being fair in that process, but also at the same time, making sure that enough people get to have creative agency in a story that is very a reflective of their experiences, but also at the same time directed at their community. And I think the fact that you and the team went about it the way that you did is just just incredible. So what's what's the future for Rajesh and Naresh? But also more importantly, what's the future holding for you? Where where are what are the creative journeys that you know you're hoping to take that you're you're taking now? And uh, yeah. The future for Rajesh and Naresh, we presented it as a, as a work in progress in the Theatre Delhi in London in 2019. Um, and we got a lot of feedback from that. I have my own reflections on, on what we could have done better in the process and what we could do better in the script, which as an ensemble, we're kind of working on, on redrafting and effectively, well, yeah, making more just li listening right listening to the feedback <laughs> and that was then it was programmed to be in the edinburgh fringe in 2020 before that was kind of a uh, postponed slash cancelled by by the old global panda so we we've been provisionally called back for 2021 and there are a few kind of moving parts still still at play at the date of recording this podcast so fingers crossed if we're lucky we, we might get a little voiceover jumping in from you pran now saying saying what's moved on between between recording and airing but that, that'll be a that'll be a little time jump that we can all enjoy when it happens <laughs> hello future pran here i have an update on rajesh and Naresh. it's actually going ahead as a digital online performance this year and it'll be running from the 6th to the 30th of august and I will leave the links for the tickets below. It's both on the Fringes website 
as well as the Wendy's website, but I'll have those linked in the show notes below. So if after all this time listening to this podcast, you're wondering if you could ever watch this play, well, now you can. And I would highly, highly recommend. Anyway, back to the podcast. And what does the future hold for you, James? Well, I hopefully I keep on writing. <laughs> um, at, at the moment, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of increasingly interested in in questions of Irish identity. A lot of Irish identity is kind of um, it's kind of built and tied up in the, the like myths in this kind of mythological, you know, like obviously the stories that a nation tells itself about itself, but, but a lot of these are sort of set in an ancient past. There's a kind of like, there's a national identity like built upon this kind of like ancient version of Ireland um, and on this like quite artistic version of Ireland. But I, I, I'm kind of interested in investigating where, where these myths and where these like stories intersect with today's Anthropocene. Well, we have say, for example, like, Fionn McCool and the Salmon of Knowledge as an Irish myth that, you know, people, people read about in, in school, bedtime stories of the rest. Like what, you know, what, what are salmon in Ireland today? You know, like there, there are huge questions around like, well, for example, like ethical food practices and whether that's like veganism, i.e. not eating the salmon, whether that's like sustainable fishing rather than fish farming, whether that's like complicated counter questions of the ability of you know of like can people afford a vegan lifestyle for example when you know they might be working class close to the poverty line and they are also questions which if you look at more of a kind of like a world view you have some of the indigenous tribes in canada a few months ago and probably ongoing who have the right to sustainably fish and hunt in their own territorial waters were then being legislatively attacked by the Canadian government, by the colonial occupying Canadian government, I might, I might add, you know, that's a distinction, and saying, you know, who were weaponizing ecological arguments against them and saying, oh, this is unsustainable, this is unethical. We, we don't support overfishing, therefore the indigenous population has to leave. And of course, the, you know, the, the unsaid part of this is that like, they, they're turning a huge blind eye towards like, massive industrial fish farms, etc. But, but it makes me interested. Like, what's the, like, the idea of weaponizing ecological arguments against indigenous populations? Well, against people who stand up against capitalism or the nation or the, the nation state in late capital is what it comes down to ultimately and and i wonder like how you know th there's something to investigate there there's, you can bring that back to ireland and you can refer to like indigenous irish populations during like british or english colonial occupation who used to poach the salmon going up the river right because these salmon were incredibly valuable fish and you have this absolute bounty once a year of like free fish <laughs> um and and you know that's like i my, i like if you've got if you've got indigenous irish people like completely like under the thumb of of like colonial occupying governments i i do not blame them for like fishing eating killing selling a lot of fish however today if that same practice is happening, that is not cool. What's changed? You know, Ireland has assumed its place on the stage of, of late capitalism. 
and I just love seeing those like little those little threads just that, that turn into knots and trying to unwind them and seeing what happens when when you when you take like ancient Irish mythological identity the past this like fetishized like like well something that I used to fetishize and still do to a certain extent of like the past where humans didn't fuck everything up how does that communicate to today how is it weaponized today as a narrative those kind of questions that's i think where we're going next okay well i i, well, I look forward to where that leads and uh before before we leave i i do do really want to thank you for coming on and where where can people find you if they want to follow you get to know your work you can find me on Instagram on the incredibly professionally titled at chicken fillet roll memes. Or you can have a look at my website, which is jamesirelandplaywright.com. Okay, I'll have both of those linked in the show notes. Mate, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, looking, looking forward to, to what the future holds for you and your work. Thanks, dude. I'm I'm looking forward to what the future holds for you. Cheers for having me on. Bye. Love and Citizenship is part of the Writer Project. We have new episodes out every Wednesday, and you can find out more in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one.